This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nathan Hopkins. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I am getting ready to release that episode. I think I, I think I talked about the new podcast last week. I'm just going to plug it here for a second, and then I'll introduce our guest. But I'm starting a new show about developer freedom. So that's freedom in your career, your code, and your life. And we're going to talk about all aspects of that. It's called the DevRev uh, for the developer revolution and just help you find that freedom. So anyway, uh, keep an eye out for that. It will be on YouTube. I will probably wind up streaming it similar to what we're doing here with Ruby Rogues. So um, anyway, stay tuned for that. I'm going to be recording it Friday afternoon. So if you want to watch it live, um, you probably can. Um, I'll put it on the devchat.tv Facebook page. I'm also using repurpose.io to get it onto YouTube. So you should be able to watch it in either place live. But yeah, uh, check it out. Uh, you can also get the podcast at thedevrev.com. And uh, anyway, uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Josh Justice. Josh, do you want to say hi? Sure, yeah. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. And uh, Ruby Rose has had a big impact on me, so I'm really honored to be able to join in. Well, thanks for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourself, let people know why you're famous and all that good stuff? Uh, sure. So I've been a developer for about 14 years. Um, I've spent most of that time in backend development, um, started with server-side Java to PHP. And then in the last three years or so, I've gotten into Ruby. And then just in the last year or so, I've moved more towards some front-end development. And uh, that's kind of related to some of the testing conversations we're going to be getting into because I'm pretty obsessed with testing. Awesome. So uh, you work for Big Nerd Ranch, if I remember right. Yeah, that's right. That's where I've been for about three years now. And they're based down in Atlanta. So do you know Dave, like you, you've seen him and he's real? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we met up once or twice at the Atlanta Ruby user group. I do exist. <laughs> I was worried you were a figment of Nate's imagination. Awesome. Well, you're on the show because uh, we were talking about testing front end, which is something that, you know, I, I think a shiver went up Nate's spine. I, I don't do a lot of it either, to be honest. So... Do you want to kind of give us an introduction to the topic? Sure. Yeah. So I, when I started at Big Nerd Ranch, I was hired as a Ruby developer. And then over time, over the several years, we've moved to more and more front-end testing, like a lot of us in the Ruby, uh, front-end development, as a lot of us in the Ruby community have uh, to include that in our offerings and what we do. And so as I started to look into using React and Vue and other front-end frameworks, I really wanted to be able to do the kind of testing that I learned in the Rails community, especially. It had just had such a huge impact on my developer freedom, my developer peace of mind, 
that when I was considering developing in something new, I wanted to know how to test it. That was like the first thing on my mind. And so it's been a bit of a journey. Um, I think that the front end testing world has come a long way in the last three years. And there's kind of some specific tools that I'm really excited about. So it's, it's been something that I've been passionate about. And as a consultancy at Big Nerd Ranch, we're working in several different front end frameworks. And so I like the ability to move back and forth between them, specifically Vue and React right now. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I ended up putting together a website because that's just how obsessed I am with testing. It's called learntdd.in. And so I have posted on there tutorials for how to do a similar kind of testing that you might be familiar with if you've read the RSpec book, um, the similar kind of outside-in testing approach in React and Vue and Ember and in Rails as well, just to kind of record uh, how I do testing on Rails on the server side. And so it's a helpful resource for me to check back to whenever I'm kind of switching between platforms. And I hope it really creates a conversation where folks can see this approach to TDD that's been out there and try it out in a new context and see what they think. And I'd love if folks give me feedback on it as well. Nice. So how often are you bouncing between React and Vue? Right now, it's been kind of in my side learning that I do a lot of bouncing. I've been on one Vue.js uh, project with a large client for about six or seven months now. So I'm not turning over between projects too much. But as I'm doing some screencasting with Big Nerd Ranch, uh, some live streaming, side project research, and things like that. Um, every month or so, I might end up going back and forth. And in the last little while, I've been working on just some tiny open source libraries. And because I'm so indecisive when it comes to front-end frameworks, I end up kind of building them out with React compatibility and Vue compatibility, just so I can defer having to ever make a decision or commitment on the frameworks. Nice. Now, we have shows on Vue and React, and I'd love to get you on those shows and talk about this approach because it's, it's an approach that I'm familiar with in Ruby, and I, I had never found a good way to do it on the front end. And then that's why I never did it. I mean, Selenium, oh my gosh, what a pain. You know, and Capybara was kind of a halfway measure that never quite got me all the way there. And so, yeah, your approach with Cypress, I was like, this looked easy. Yeah, I've had a really good experiences with uh, Cypress. I think my, I've always been sort of a middle of the adoption curve kind of person. And so, you know, I got into Rails just a few years ago and I tell everyone the testing paths in the Rails world and in the Ruby world are really well trod now. Like a lot of the principles have been figured out, like for Rails on the server side in particular, folks have figured out what works really well. And there's disagreements, of course, but you can find lots of books uh, that will walk you through a good approach in Rails on the server side. And so I, like, even as we were talking about Capybara before the show, like, I had gotten really good recommendations from my team at Big Nerd Ranch about how much to do or not do JavaScript testing in a Rails app. But I had experienced, you know, folks had turned, steered me away from WebDriver testing because of, and Selenium testing because of some of those pain points. So I have avoided, I think, experiencing a lot of that. Uh, but as I've tried out Cypress, their big argument is that it's a totally new architecture for testing that takes the kind of rich front-end applications that we have these days into account. And I've had a great experience with it so far. One of my teammates just applied, uh, started using Cypress on his client project for the same client, and it's been transformational for him. Um, he's been doing React and Rails development for a long time. And uh, it has really helped him test out this legacy application because it doesn't have any knowledge. It doesn't need to have any knowledge of what front-end framework you're using. It can just hook into the browser and to the DOM. I think Charles mentioned something, Nathan, about uh, the shiver in your spine for front-end testing. Do you, uh, have you had specific negative experiences there you'd like to share? Uh, 
Um, well, no, it's not so much uh, that I've got negative experiences with testing. I'm, I'm somewhat limited in my front end, formalized testing, you know, and nowadays I'm actually trying to minimize how much JavaScript I'm writing. So I'm a huge fan of stimulus and, and actually live view uh, from the Phoenix uh, framework side. So I'm trying, I've been trying some strategies similar to those types of things, but I'm curious with your, your testing approach sounds like it might work quite well with a stimulus front end as well. That's great. I think I've been interested in stimulus. I've just thought about it in the last couple of days. I think there's a big push in some corners of the web community towards considering more server-side rendering as we think about the cost of all the JavaScript we're shipping down. And if it's always needed, sometimes it is or provides a big benefit, but maybe it's not always. And if stimulus or if LiveView provide a good happy middle ground where you can get a lot of the interactivity without the complexity of a distributed system, there's a lot of benefit there. And I think Cypress would be great to try out there. I know that they say that Cypress is for any kind of web testing you would want to do, even for server rendered apps. And so it's hooked into the browser. And so I think it would be a great fit for that medium ground, even as you're thinking of refactoring to it. That's something that got me excited in the midst of my kind of hesitance to commit to any one front end framework. The fact that I could learn Cypress and then apply it to React or Vue or Stimulus or the latest thing that comes along, the fact that it could carry over between those is really nice for me. And it's really useful as a consultant to have a tool that I can pull out of my toolbox, regardless of what new front-end approach I'm trying. So what's your recommendation for somebody wanting to get started with Cypress? Cypress's docs are really great. And so you can definitely check those out to get a sense of how it works. Um, They have a few different conference talks that walk through how it's set up, as well as some of the philosophies where they recommend Uh, Principles like, for example, don't run through your login screen every single time you're running a new test, but instead hook in using the way Cypress can hook into browser facilities to set a cookie or to stub out network of requests so you don't need to actually go back and hit the server. So they have a bunch of great resources there. And certainly if you're familiar with outside-in testing or RSpec testing on the Ruby side, my conference talks on TDD and Vue or TDD and React could be very useful um, to to see, to follow through the TDD approach, not just the, you know, here's mechanically how to use the tool, but how could I see myself going through a flow that would walk me through building out a feature? Yeah, I think that Cypress, I've looked into it in the past and it definitely is a pretty cool solution. But one thing that kind of left me a bit confused about it is that it appears that you have to have a, environment already stood up and running. So it's not really something that you can incorporate into your CICD. Is that accurate or has it since changed where you can now include that? When you say a, an environment that's already up and running, can you kind of provide a bit more detail on what you mean by that? Yeah, so like a, a testing environment or a pre-production environment that you would then run a regression test on. So when you run Cypress, it has to point to a endpoint accessible URL. I guess you could stand up on your local host, get the application up and running, and then point the Cypress to your local host since it's a download and installed product. But if you were to incorporate that into your continuous integration and continuous delivery, does it work in that fashion? Or is it something that you're really going to only be able to test locally or on a existing environment that's already stood up? Well, luckily, I just tried out Cypress on CI for the very first time last week. So <laughs> if this had been a week earlier, I would have nothing to say. But now I have more than nothing to say. 
So Cypress has <laughs> a few different approaches. <laughs> they have a few different approaches to this. Their, their docs uh, talk about CI and how you can use Cypress in a CI-like environment. So the new Vue CLI 3, if you're using Vue.js, uh, has built-in support for Cypress. So you can choose, as you're standing up a new Vue project, to go with either Cypress or Nightwatch for end-to-end testing, or nothing for end-to-end testing. And so when you run Cypress from within Vue CLI, the one command will actually start up a testing server and it will run uh, will run your Cypress tests against it. So you don't need to be running an independent environment locally or on CI. So that's nice and convenient. If you're working in React or some other uh, setup, then you would need to start up your server somehow running on one port and then run Cypress to go over and hit that other port. And their docs get into that. I had thought that it might be a good idea to be able to start up the server from within the Cypress process itself, because we're used to that in the Rails world as well, and it was included in Vue CLI 3. In their docs, they actually recommend against that, and I hadn't dug in enough yet to see why. But they had some instructions in there that I've just put into place in the last couple of days to, whether it's in Circle CI or just a bash script running on an arbitrary CI server, to be able to start your server uh, for your application, wait for it to be started and accessible on a given port, and then start up Cypress to hit it. And so that is an approach that they would recommend. Now, it's interesting because there are trade-offs there. Like one of the nicely trod paths in Rails testing is just how integrated the test runners are. And so you just run RSpec and you know you're good to go, uh, RSpec Rails, and it's all hooked in. I had a ex- similar experience in Ember. So Ember was actually my first substantial front-end framework that I looked into. And there was a gentleman named Torin Billups that did an outside-in testing tutorial on Ember. Mm-hmm. And it was really influential to me. It was the first time that I had a, you know, like a lot of us I had who've been around for a while, I had done jQuery front-end development, a little bit of backbone front-end development. So the idea that I could have a front-end that was robust enough to even have a testing framework uh, available out of the box was really new to me. And so that his, his outside-in TDD tutorial was re- what really gave me the vision to look for ways to do the same kind of testing in other front-end frameworks. So Ember and Rails have the testing built in out of the box and somewhat VCLI 3 does as well. So if you're using it in a React approach where you're kind of assembling the framework and the whole your whole application stack, you need to do a bit more custom wiring to put things together. And that's kind of just a general ecosystem trade-off you'll experience. But I think the, the paradigm of getting it all running on your one CI server is something that you can follow just as well with Cypress testing. It just might take a little more work. Cool. And how can you test code coverage? Because you know that's kind of where my other, I guess, hiccup with a service like Cypress is, is that I want to know really how much of my code coverage am I hitting? And because it is having to hit an endpoint, so the application is already up and running. It's not actually going through parsing the files per se. Is there anything that kind of gives you any indication of how good your coverage is with these Cypress tests? Let me ask a follow-up question, just because I've seen a few different people in different environments take different approaches to code coverage. Like on your server-side Ruby or other contexts, like how do you approach code coverage in other contexts than on the front end? So on the back end, we use SimpleCov, which is a pretty cool gem, which gives you a breakdown charts of all the different files in your application. And as it runs through each test, it's able to append to a separate file where it, what lines it's hit. So if you have like an if block, if something is true, then otherwise, if something else is true, if you only ever test and hit something in that first if, 
then the second part would not be covered because the code's never touched it. So that way you know that you have a potential risk that this other part of this method is not being touched. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's helpful. So actually, the first project that I've worked on that we've been using code coverage is this Vue.js project for a client. And Vue uh, CLI 2 and 3, I believe, both include code coverage by default. And so they're turned on and available for you. In those Vue setups, the code coverage is reports just on unit tests or component tests. So the end-to-end tests don't factor into that. And I think the idea there is that it might just be a pragmatic thing, like maybe it would be hard for them to cover it with end-to-end tests. But it also might be, hey, like we want full coverage or to know the coverage we have at the unit testing level. And that's been a good experience for me to get to see a sense of the benefits of, of code coverage. Sometimes when I'm writing my personal projects, I realize like, oh, like there's nothing that was asking me or forcing me to test this branch. That's interesting. I think my experience at Big Nerd Ranch has been we haven't reached for code coverage tools a lot on our Ruby projects or other projects. And I think the reason why, just like the reason that we haven't felt a huge need to try out TypeScript yet, has been, you know, for our small consulting projects, usually we just have one or two or three web developers working on them. We are able to have a pretty good sense of of what our tests are covering. We like to take a test-driven development approach. And so if you are, you know, rigorously following test-driven development, in some sense, you sort of have 100% test coverage guaranteed if you're following it well and you're not writing any production code until you first have a test that drives you there. So whether it's unit level that's measurable or not, one way or the other, you would have uh, you know, full 100% coverage. Now, of course, when you have a large team, like even on this client project, we have about eight or 10 developers. In that approach, even assuming everyone had the best intentions of fully covering things, that's just a lot of people and a lot of PRs to review where it can be hard to know for sure if someone had forgotten something. And if somebody misses a branch or misses covering something with code, I can see the consequences rippling out a lot more to a larger team. So I think for like very small teams or individuals, if you want to follow TDD for other benefits, I think you may not need to worry too much about formal code coverage metrics, but on a larger team, there could be good reason to do that. And at that point, if the tools are best served for doing code coverage with the unit tests, it might make sense to say, well, what percentage do I want to shoot for for unit test coverage and then not really include end-to-end tests? Now, if Cypress may have some facilities to kind of measure the code coverage they have, I haven't looked into it yet. But if there are no options for that, that's the approach I might recommend. Now, are you using a tool like Istanbul? I think that's what CLI pulls in, UCLA. Yeah, Istanbul is the one. I have heard at a conference recently, someone from the Node core team mentioned some features built into Node 10 for automatic code coverage testing down at the engine level. And so there's some cool possibilities there. But I think uh, at least UCLI 2, which is what this client project was, is using Istanbul. I think I've heard some similar rumors, but I don't know if I can substantiate them. So, Cool. Yeah. My take on the whole thing is that anything that is hitting the browser and doing that kind of coverage should be excluded from your actual unit test coverage. I think that they should be two separate reports or you should just forget about the coverage of the end-to-end testing entirely because you're really kind of working through pseudo stories with the end-to-end coverage with Cypress and stuff like, hey, let's make sure that people can log in and deposit a paycheck or whatever Mm -hmm. the application is. And it's not going to go through the more intimate uh, scenarios that you may have with something like unit testing 
or integration tests. So I think that the coverage results that you would get from a unit test or integration test is going to be a lot more useful and accurate information of actual true coverage. Whereas if you run just even one capybara test on your application, on a Rails application, you've like automatically hit like 50% coverage. So, you know, you know, that's kind of my take on on it. One thing that I'm, I'm planning on doing, so I have a project that I haven't done a lot of testing on. I'm going to write some of the capybara or, you know, whatever tests there. And my intent is, is to run down the happy paths and then see what I'm actually not using. So what doesn't get test coverage is stuff that I, is a candidate to be pulled out. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at using that in a different way. I, I know this is a lot, little off topic, but I thought it was interesting. No, actually, that reminds me of, of kind of an important thing that comes into thinking about test-driven development and outside-in testing. Specifically, when I asked, was learning about this approach at Big Nerd and I asked my coworkers how to learn more, there's a few books they pointed me to um, that relate to this. Uh, so one is, well, at, at the time, it was the RSpec book. Have, have any of y'all read the original mm-hmm. VR spec book? So, so there's, in just last year or so, uh, Myron Marston and Aaron Dees released an updated one uh, called Effective Testing with RSpec 3. Uh, Myron was on the RSpec. He was a core maintainer of RSpec at the time. And it's really, I've read both, and both are really great. So I'd, I'd recommend the new one for sure. Um, the other book that folks recommended me to was Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests by Steve Freeman and Matt Price. And this is kind of the original resource that first proposed the idea of outside-in testing, where you start with that feature story, you write out what the user wants to be able to do, and then you step down to lower levels to test drive out individual, I was going to say controllers, but not really controllers anymore, but individual models or individual business logic classes or whatever you might need to do. So those are both really great resources that I highly recommend. And uh, in that approach, if you follow it uh, by the letter, then you would really have an end-to-end test that would cover all the functionality in your app. Like all the edge cases you have, you would write out an end-to-end test that would cover that. I was wondering about this at first because that didn't seem to be my experience or what any of my coworkers were doing. And since then, I, it may be that I'm just misunderstanding the book and that's not actually the conclusion that their outside-in testing approach would lead you to. Instead, it seems very common to do just what Charles said, which is to, a happy, uh, to end-to-end test the happy path, maybe one error path. Like the example mm-hmm. I always go to is for like a credit card payment form. Maybe you would show... Uh, an error that would like, maybe you would have an end-to-end test that would show validation errors, uh, but you wouldn't test every single possible uh, validation error. And maybe another one that showed some kind of credit card error, but you wouldn't need to handle uh, card decline, invalid credit card number, can't connect to the credit card server. Those things could all be done at the unit test level. So that seems to be the pragmatic approach that I see just about everyone go to in Ruby and on the front end is to... uh, I shouldn't say just about everyone because there's lots of different views, but I don't see anybody recommending outside test driving every single part of your app from the outside, but instead to use those outside in tests for, uh, sorry, to use the acceptance tests to drive out the main features of your app and then use unit tests to drive out various kinds of edge cases. I'm actually doing a live stream on Fridays now where currently I'm going through test-driven development with React with Cypress and some other React-specific tools for the lower-level tests. And we've just gotten to that point where we're starting to add in edge cases 
and we're driving those out at a lower level so that we don't have to make those end-to-end tests longer and longer. I'm not sure if it's been y'all's experience, but some more advice I got from Ruby folks was that if you put everything in your end-to-end tests, they can get very slow. Even if you're just using rack test, even if you're not going through JavaScript, mm-hmm. those test times can get exponentially larger and larger. And so that's a great pragmatic reason not to put every single thing in your end-to-end tests that you can get diminishing returns and your test suite can just get unmanageable over the years. And how is this stability with tests like Cypress doing the end-to-end tests if you are testing against a stood-up environment? Because if you are testing something like a login, then that user has to already be created. Then if you're going to, like, let's say a Twitter app, follow another user, that other user already has to be created and not followed. So how do you handle those kind of tests? I think we're really spoiled in the Rails world because of those well-trodden paths, as I've mentioned. It's just so easy to be able to create records, you know, direct database access, just use Factory Bot to create those records that you need for an individual test and they'll be rolled back. And it seems like even in upcoming versions of Rails, even parallel t- testing will be handled by default. So on the front end, it's a bit different and it does get more complex as a distributed system where you might have a different back end. I think the answer depends on if you're wanting to have your Cypress test connect to your backend server as well, or if you want to step out the backend. So for the small, you know, I've only gotten a chance to use Cypress on side projects so far. And for those, they've been simple enough that I don't feel the need to connect the front end and back end together. So I'll have my Rails API. That's what I always use for my APIs on the back end. And I'll use some RSpec tests for that, just doing request tests to confirm that the endpoints I need are there and maybe that some authentication protection is there. Um, and I can use Factory Bot as usual for those. Then on the front end, I'll use either for Ember or for other frameworks where I might might use Cypress. I can just test the front end and you can actually stub out the back end. So uh, in Ember, there's a tool called Mirage that lets you do that very easily. I would use Cypress has built-in facilities to do that for other frameworks. And so Mm -hmm. some friends of mine that have used Cypress in production, that's what they reach for is to stub out those requests. So as you're doing uh, one test at a time, you can stub out the back end to be able to just return the data you want at that time. Now, I think there is also definitely value of having end-to-end tests that are more end-to-end in that they are running through the back end as well. I would actually step out um, external services that you can't control there. But if you think about your front end and back end as one unified application, it can make sense to have some test coverage there. You might even you know, have fewer tests that run through the whole stack and then more tests that are just isolated to the front end application itself. But in that case, um, you know, you'd probably want a unique environment. Um, I know that Cypress has the ability for you to kick off uh, command line commands. And so you could set up a rake task that would set up a certain, you know, fixture of data for a certain test scenario or one standard fixture that would set everything up for you. You would probably want to use something like VCR to step out, you know, th- you know Twitter API requests, GitHub API requests or something like that. So at that point, you potentially be drawing on some of the Rails technologies that we know and love. But just having two systems talking to one, one another is going to be inherently a bit more complex than if you just had a Rail, Rails server rendered app, which is kind of the common scenario whenever you get into having a front-end app separately as well. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. 
You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Does that answer your question or provide some thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. So I think my biggest takeaway is that we should abandon front-end apps and just go straight to the Rails rendered apps. (laughs) (laughs) Or did I miss your point there? (laughs) You know, it's... It's, it's so, you know, I have been thinking about this recently, though. Um, you know, I have been, the circles that I've been in as we've been looking for uh, what contracts fit with us and what the kind of companies that Bigner Ranch tends to work for, we, uh, those, those rich JavaScript-based apps is what the demand is for right now. And so we're having a lot of success mm-hmm. with that. And I've seen a lot of the benefits there. Uh, in particular, I've dabbled in some, some native development and I've got on iOS in particular, and I've gotten to see some of the benefits there, but also the cost of, you know, what it takes to build out a native app. And so it's really made me fall in love with the web and just the possibilities of the web platform. So I love to be able to create rich JavaScript applications. At the same time, like I mentioned before, like there are some intractable challenges there where, you know, you have to think about how much JavaScript you're shipping down. Um, you have to think about the support on older browsers. And so even aside from a philosophical standpoint, which you could certainly take and say, I think the web should be as accessible as possible. I want to build apps that run, uh, you know, we need to be concerned about, you know, the next billion users. And so I think that absolutely makes sense. So I think getting outside of my specific consulting experience right now, there's a lot of good arguments for server rendered apps. So I am excited what Phoenix is doing in that space. Uh, what Stimulus is doing there. And actually, the if I can mention another podcast real quick, uh, the Bike Shed podcast from over at ThoughtBot was mentioning uh, just in the last week or two what they've done uh, and how they're continuing to see value added to clients by focusing on Rails server-rendered apps because it has optimal productivity. Uh, it allows them to deliver business features quickly. And I think it's really great to think about a progressive approach there, like whether you might start with Rails server-rendered and then move to Stimulus or maybe move gradually into Vue.js because it's really well built for that. It allows you to flex and really serve the business well. Um, so it's a good thing to consider. Yep. I, for one, am uh, really big on Turbolinks and Stimulus, and I've played around with the Turbolinks for iOS to interface with native apps in a hybrid fashion. So those definitely have my vote, but it's always good and refreshing to hear the current market demand experience and stuff because I admit I I will fully admit that I really don't care for reactor view or angular for the front end <gasps> frame because because <laughs> I, I truly haven't seen a application that I'm developing which requires that. And I've built some really extensive applications. I've built some really simple ones. And what's always taken precedence over anything else was the need for productivity. You know, getting features out, getting testing done, and that kind of stuff. Not so much the fancy, you know, and safe management stuff that you get with something like React Review. A few years ago, DHH's RailsConf keynote mentioned the Prepper Backpack and the idea of if Basecamp crashed and burned and I was starting over from scratch, 
to, what would I want to have to be able to have a job and build a company? And he talked about the appeal of Rails and how Rails has so much available and such a great open source community around it. You can start an app and you can start a company. And that really has resonated with me a lot in the last six months. Um, I had a coworker mentioned in passing, and he clarified later that it wasn't quite what he meant. He's a newer developer who started on the front end. And he's a really smart guy, someone that I really look up to for just his desire and interest to be in the front end and on Node on the back end and native Android development. Like he really knows his stuff. But he mentioned to me, it's like, he's like, I don't know if I could be a full stack developer in the next five years or the next 10 years even. And I like, it was like an existential crisis for me. I was like, wait a second, like, have we embraced an approach to software development where people can't build their own thing anymore? I think about the side projects that I made where I just have some simple amount of data and I want to slap it together in a Rails app and throw it up on a server so I can just track something that's useful to me. Or even a side project that I've tried to monetize and not been great because I'm not great at that. But it was fun to be able to do it and the freedom to be able to create something that's standalone. Whereas if you're using tools where it's like you can't realistically create a front end and back end because it's just too much to know and too much to learn, that is much less discouraging. You have much less freedom. Uh, Tom Dale from uh, Emberfest, I just watched a video of his yesterday where he was talking about the same thing where he wanted Ember to be a framework where you can build something cool on the weekend and come in and show it to folks and not be something where you have to get a big job where with a company that has a front-end department and a separate back-end department, and there's all that overhead just to be able to make something that's actually useful. So I want to consider that. You know, I have 14 years in the industry, and so I have Rails is very comfortable for me. So it's easy for me to reach to Rails to build out an API and then learn something new on the front-end to work with it. But for a newer developer to have to learn both of those at the same time, like, that's challenging. And so it's I think it's really useful to think about when you can build real things using just a monolithic app, using Rails server rendered or Phoenix server rendered. And I think you hit on a really important point there, whether you meant to or not, but for new developers coming in and choosing Rails, it's not as simple as it used to be. So if you think back to the early 1900s, when the Olympics were going on, what was actually required to get a gold medal? If you look up some of those videos, it's kind of a joke. You know, they just jump off a little trampoline thing and do one flip and that's it. Now, if you're not doing a quadruple back flip, you know, 720 degree spin, then you're just going to be left in the dust. And I think our frameworks have kind of taken that role too. So back when I started in Rails, you had your standard model view controller. Today, you have active job, you have encrypted credentials, you have the action cable, and so many other components that all tie in. And soon we're going to have action text. So you have all of these things that are now built on top of what used to be simple. And it's a lot more complicated now. I'm not saying that those changes were unjust. I think that they are needed in order for the product and framework to continue on and to be useful for now and in the future. But for a new developer perspective, it's almost overwhelming now. You can't just quickly pick up a book and learn Rails in 30 minutes anymore. There's so much more involved. I, th- I think a lot of that, though, is the community's fault, less than Rails' fault. Because you can go build a basic Rails app without knowing any of that stuff. Yeah. Right? I mean, I can go build a basic blog and not have to know any of those things. I've heard DHH say on multiple occasions that his perspective on Rails design is essentially 
what would I need or want in order to build Basecamp today? And so we get all of this other stuff in. And yeah, there's more to learn in order to master all of the aspects of Rails. But just to get started, it, it's still got a lot of the same simple components. And you don't need to know a lot of the other stuff until you, you know, begin to need those features. And I yeah. think a lot of times we talk about those features instead of talking about, hey, you're getting started. Just do the MVC thing and, you know, generate a couple of controllers and a couple of views and fiddle with it. Yeah, to that point, even the original video from DHH where he built a blog in 15 minutes is still relevant. Yeah, whoops. Whoops. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I I think the the counter argument to some of the complexity, I think on the JavaScript front, a lot of folks would say that's where serverless and Lambda come in because they're going to, they're commoditizing the back end through that and saying, well, just go write some JavaScript functions and you magically have a back end. Right. And to some degree, you can get away with that. We did an episode on JavaScript Jabber where we explored that approach. And it's appropriate for some things and not others. But yeah, it's definitely powerful. And you don't have to worry about any of the infrastructure, any of the framework stuff. It's just, I have this thing and it needs to do this other thing. So have you guys ever tried messing around with uh, serverless functions and stuff with AWS Lambda? Okay, so I have, a, <laughs> I built a authentication so you can log into an app, you can tap into some GPS, get your location, and you can send some events back to the quote server. And that's not easy. You know, there is not a good flow or good overall idea of workflow within a serverless environment. So doing the user authentication, you're hitting a completely separate database than you normally would if you're using AWS and going to use something like um, Cognito to handle your list of users authentication and the uh, authorization to the app. But then you have other areas in the application. Well, this kind of user, this role should have access to this kind of thing. And there's a huge disconnect between the two. And I guess that is the purpose of serverless. But I would say that we're still very far off. We're going to need some kind of like serverless framework that kind of ties it all in together to make it easier to develop. Yeah, there is a serverless utility. This is not what the show's about, but I'm just going to throw it There's a serverless utility on NPM. And you can actually go to serverless.com, I think it is. And it'll show you how to use it. But it, it makes a lot of that setup a whole lot easier because you just add your AWS credentials or Azure credentials and it'll set it up. I've also found, though, that if you're talking about workflows, that uh, Azure is actually a little bit easier to reason about than AWS for this kind of thing, Azure Functions. Yeah, interestingly, the, this conversation is, does tie back to the testing topic in the sense that in, in the serverless world, your units are smaller and easier to reason about, but mm-hmm. it, it's a little more difficult to retain that holistic view of the system, right? And so kind of the outside in type of testing, once you drop into the lowest level, you're thinking of in, in small terms with your unit test, but then you come all the way back out to your full integration end-to-end testing. And now you're, you're having to think about the system holistically. That's an area that I think Rails with the server rendered app has really nailed it. Like you, you really can't get involved with Rails without maintaining that holistic view of the system. 
Yeah, I think that kind of complexity is exactly why I've been hesitant to look into uh, serverless too much. Not that I'm opposed to it and consulting project comes in that needs it, then sounds good. Time to learn. But for my own personal projects and for the kind of standalone consulting projects that we tend to get, the benefits of Rails' holistic view is just so appealing that, you know, even JavaScript server-side frameworks, let alone a serverless approach, don't seem to be try- like trying to take the same approach that Rails mm-hmm. is. Phoenix is close and shares a lot of the same philosophies, although there are significant differences. But I, I just see so many of those benefits of that unified approach. Like I think about the concerns and lessons learned that folks have shared from a microservices approach. And serverless seems to be even one step further in that direction, which I'm sure has plenty of benefits but also has plenty of that complexity and cost that Nathan shared. So this relates to like a a personal view of mine that kind of informs why I've kind of made this site to share these views of testing. When it comes to technology, I would rather take smaller steps. Like I'm more concerned about us losing lessons that we've had in the past than I am about us not moving fast enough to embrace new things. So I'm happy for folks to kind of be on the bleeding edge and cut themselves on it. And sorry about that, but please share with me your lessons learned. I like to move into things where, you know, it's time to start kind of laying down the tracks. I mean, to go back to that metaphor, time to start cutting away the path that people have snaked through the woods to kind of make it more easily travelable. That's the the time that kind of appeals to me to get in technologies, because then I can ensure that we're really considering what we've learned in the past and thinking about, you know, does the same testing approach that has worked for us on the server side work on client-side apps? Does it work in native iOS and Android apps? Does it work in a serverless system or does it not? Um, Those are the questions that really interest and excite me the most. And so that's the space that I, I find myself wanting to be. So what are we lacking then if we're testing the front end and we want to do it the way we do on the back end? I mean, well, what's the friction that's left? Because it seems like Cypress removed some of that, but it doesn't seem like it's completely seamless. I think when you have front-end frameworks that are less convention-based than Rails is, you're inherently going to have more that you have to write by hand in the testing world as well as in the development world. Dan Abramov from the React community uh, just recently, I forget, I, I should have looked up the joke to share it, but he said that he finally put down his thoughts for organizing the directory structure of React and he bought a domain and put it up on there and when you open it up, it says, organize it however you want. So like, that's a different <laughs> philosophy that we're used, than we're used to in the Rails world. Um, and there's pros and cons there, of course. But um, when you can't make assumptions based on conventions, you know, you will have to think through it. And so even more so than in an RSpec-based world, uh, like you need to think through even questions about, are you going to use Jest? Or are you going to use Mocha for testing? Mm-hmm. Are you going to use Cypress or not? There's One of the trade-offs of Cypress that's important to know is that Cypress isn't yet fully cross-browser compatible. It runs in Chrome, and I think they're close to having Firefox support. So if you want to test across all browsers, including IE and Edge, you probably need to use a Selenium-based solution. I think that that can be a a complementary thing, though, where you maybe do some simple happy path tests just to make sure the whole site doesn't blow up in Edge. And then for the core functionality of your app, and certainly for the test driving of all the features, maybe that's done in Cypress as well. And yet there, there's complexity there still, where now you have two different test tools to maintain and just the mental overhead associated with that. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of questions around the testing philosophies as well. One of the funniest things to me is to see many folks in the front-end world coming up with different their own takes on the testing pyramid. And asserting that, well, you know, on the front end, it's sort of an inverted pyramid. It's an ice cream code or it's the testing trophy. And I'm, I'm all up for experimentation. Like, and I'm 
folks that are more experienced than me on the front end, I want to hear what they've learned and what they think works best in JavaScript apps running in the browser. But again, like I want to understand well the reasons that the test pyramid was advocated and to think about like what has changed or what hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So DHH wrote an article in 2014, I think. Let's see. It was called... uh, TDD is dead. No, I'm thinking of the one where it's (laughs) test-induced design damage. Have you read that? Do you kind of know his take on on how the fact that we took... I shouldn't say it's the fact. It's his opinion (laughs) that we took testing a little too far and and got a little too zealous about it. it. is that is that happening on the front end, or are you seeing that we're just still early days in in trying to figure out how we're supposed to be testing the front end? I'm glad you brought that up because that quite you know being at the middle of the adoption curve, I got excited about TDD like the year after his 2014 TDD is dead talk at RailsConf and accompanying blog post, and the idea of test driven design damage came out in that talk. I'm not sure if that was before or after the blog post, but I'm sure the thoughts are very similar. So another thing about my mindset is I like the reason I like all these different frameworks and I'm constantly changing topics here to other ones is that I like to bring thoughts together and synthesize them. Like how this person has this view, this person has that view. I don't need to get them to agree, but I want to take their input and come to my own conclusion on it. So as DHH, who I respected a ton for Rails, because I absolutely love Rails, was very negative on TDD. And yet my coworkers were very positive on it. And a lot of folks in the software design community were very positive on it. And so I had to resolve them. I couldn't just let it go. I'm like, all my coworkers were like, Josh, why do you keep asking the same questions? Like I I need a resolution in my own head um, or else just to stop because I stress myself out too much. So I wrote an early blog post on this comparing uh, what DHH was saying about design damage there to the growing object-oriented software book and to some of the earlier test-driven development resources by Mark Fowler and Kent Beck to try to come to my own take on all that. I think as it came out in many different resources and even conversations between Kent Beck and DHH that happened after that, it seemed like there's any of these testing approaches you can do incorrectly and abuse them. And it's, it's hard. I, I think and one of my big takeaways on testing in general and TDD in particular is I don't feel like there's this threshold you cross where it's just easy and obvious from here on out. Or if we could just come up with the right way to teach testing, it would be super obvious and you just do it and everything's fine. Like there seemed to be a lot of inherent complexity and trade-offs that you just need maturity in your career and in a given platform to be able to get a feel for. And so I think there's always going to be complexity there around testing. So I don't fault anyone for or criticize anyone for having tests be painful for them to write. I think that's the case for all of us and certainly all of us at the start. But to, to actually answer your question, DHH's approach that he advocated for testing, if I remember correctly, was test after and test more at an integration or end-to-end level. And that that really gives you the confidence uh, that you want without a lot of the design damage, he would say, or maybe non-essential testing there. A similar approach that I hear is from Kent C. Dodds in the front-end and React testing community. Um, So he advocates for the, the testing trophy which if you think about the shape of, well, I guess trophies have different shapes, but the trophy that he drew is heavier on the top, talking about integration to get that confidence level. And it gives you the freedom to refactor all the insides because in, you know, individual functions and methods and individual classes, you can move around however you want. I think that definitely makes sense. I think the thing that draws me to unit testing is when you have an intentional decision where you want the design input on those individual units. 
The book, Growing Object-Oriented Software, specifically talks about how their approach to testing leads you to a specific object-oriented style where your classes are pluggable and interchangeable. And so it could be something where you consider the kind of system you're building. If it's going to be a large enterprise system and you know you're going to want to be able to rearrange components and sub things out, integrating with one service and then another. And as the business rules change, that could be a good reason to kind of do lower level unit testing to connect things together. Um, on the flip side, for like my side projects, although I really am this obsessed with testing, I found myself gravitating a bit more towards just doing the end to end testing, just like. Kent and DHH recommend um, because I haven't found a whole lot of need for that low-level refactoring or that design input that the unit tests provide. So I think to sum it up, when you're thinking about whether to test at the low level or when you think about whether to test before or test afterwards, I think a really good question to ask is, do you want that design input on individual components of your code or are you just looking for the confidence that it works? If you're just looking for confidence, then probably test after at the end-to-end level uh, is great. Yeah, we talked to Kent last week. Kent C. Dodds. You mentioned Kent Beck and Kent C. Dodds. Uh, we talked to Kent C. Dodds last week about his React testing library and his approach. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, take on what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish with our tests. And he focuses more on um, the our confidence. So basically a confidence score on how to write code or, or how we move forward with our code as opposed to 100% test coverage or, you know, how much we have covered by unit tests versus other kinds of tests. And then, and then, yeah, he talked about the trophy. That episode, I think, will come out a week after this one. So uh, keep an eye out on that on React Roundup. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a really interesting thing to add to the context of what we're talking about here. One thought that I've heard before is that when you start, especially in the early days, uh, when you're a little younger in your career, adhering to some of those best practices a little more religiously, they kind of shape you know, your, the way you think about structuring your code. And then as you get more comfortable building things, you don't necessarily need that guidance, right? And so I've actually built some systems where I've intentionally left all testing out of it because it was a very early exploratory prototype and it warranted refactoring, significant refactoring that I would never have done had I written strict unit tests around the thing. Yeah, I think that um, the, that inherent complexity around testing and probably software architecture and design in general means that as you kind of grow in your career, those judgment calls come up. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely encourage folks, you know, early on, like even when I'm doing TDD tutorials or I have a local meetup that I used to run where we would walk through TDD katas together. And I would really encourage folks that were new to testing, like take those small steps, like write only enough code to, to get past the current error or test failure. And they would say, well, why? Like I, I already know the implementation I'm going to use. And so the first answer I might give them is so that you can, like, you know, if you're your, your emotion is like, I, I'm just going to write the whole thing because I already know it, but then you won't be ready to take small steps when you need to. So as I've learned more about these things and practice them, I notice when I'm on a client project with an existing code base or in a new framework, like when I first started in Vue.js, where I had a lot of uncertainty about how things came together. And so whenever I was refactoring or even writing something new, I would take a very small step and then I would run the tests and see the feedback that I got. So I got a really feel for when that feedback was not just a a way that people talked about testing, but it's like, I, it is really concretely helping me right now. And then from my side projects, when I felt like, you know, I'm exploring 
a new way to do authentication in view and a new way to serialize the data to the server. And I just want to put it together right now. And it feels like the tests are going to slow me down. And so, you know, being able to make those judgment calls. And I, I think that comes from not just time in software development and not just trying new things, but also reflecting. It's something I've learned a ton at Big Nerd. Um, I got to go to a Sandy Metz training several years ago. And that idea of reflection in pair programming and in mob programming altogether to really think through the why of what you're doing and to learn to be able to articulate your thoughts on a piece of code and on a testing approach was super invaluable to me to get a sense for um, these principles, to get a sense for the trade-offs, and just to get a sense for myself on when I have an instinct. I never would have trusted in instinct several years ago, but I'm, I'm learning to, to have an instinct for something about this. Just that It doesn't feel like I have the confidence and the assurance, and I'm not quite sure why yet, but let me try a different testing or not testing approach and see if that helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no question. When, when you test, every, every time I test, I'm surprised at how it starts to shape my thinking about the code and how I want to structure it. And I, I'm always surprised at how many bugs I catch <laughs> yeah. in code that you thought was actually operating. The, the challenge, I think one of the risks with it, uh, if you go too far, is a bit of a sunk cost fallacy. So, for example, in that project I had mentioned before, I ended up where I needed to throw away about a third of the entire project. There were, there were data models, there were big swaths of code that I needed to throw away. And I would have been far more reluctant to do that had I spent the effort to really robustly test it. Yep. So I think my overall view is testing is important, whether it's acceptance testing, unit testing, integration tests, they all have good value. But I definitely am a test after the fact, and I use more of the DeWitt style of development. That's my self-key term for develop with the intention of testing. And the idea behind that is you develop first, you write the features, you get it working on the browser how you want, but you keep in mind that you're going to have to come back and test this. So don't write 500 line methods because you're not going to be able to test that. You know, don't have things so abstracted that there is never any kind of entry point to anything. So have a common pattern that you use, like a class that you're creating, have a call method for the entry point and make the methods short. Don't have too many public methods, have a lot of private methods that are not exposed to the API. So you don't really have to test those as much because they're just consumed within that class. Yeah, I think that that kind of approach to testing, like the, the idea of thinking about how you're going to structure your code to make it testable is the kind of thing that can be challenging at first, but it's one of those other things that as you grow in experience, you have more sense for it. I have been actually encouraging folks to consider test-driven development as a way to learn testing. Maybe not literally the first thing you do, like maybe just learn the basics of how to write a test in you know, uh, RSpec or uh, mini test, uh, you know, start it with the basics. But to walk you through, um, I think in my previous job, we were working in PHP and we wanted to get into testing because we were experiencing the pain of our systems being unreliable and changes we were making, breaking them, and just this exponentially increasing amount of time to do manual testing. So we wanted to get into testing, but first of all, the paths were not well trod in PHP at the time. And also, we didn't know how to write testable code. So if folks talk about unit tests or lower level tests, 
drying out what's testable or not. Uh, drying out exactly what you just mentioned, Dave, for the, the, the downsides of long methods, the downsides of uh, tight coupling and hard coding to individual classes. And so if you do test-driven development, in some cases to learn, it can show you what, the, um, what a more testable code looks like. You can start to experience the pain of if you have to create a lot of mocks or test doubles. That's a, an encouragement to you to split up the code to make it more easily testable. And then once you've done that and gotten practice in that, then you can come in and write code from scratch and you already have the intuition or just the muscle memory of writing code that fits with that. And you can see the benefits of the simplicity of those short functions and methods, whether you do end up testing at a unit testing level or not. So I think the, the practice, the discipline of testing um, or test-driven development can influence your design, uh, whether you're writing tests on an individual project or not. Yeah, I've had conversations with Corey Haynes and he mentioned that periodically he'll, he, he's a test-driven, uh, test test-first advocate. But uh, he's mentioned that he goes through and periodically he'll go for a month or two without writing test first. And he mentioned that, yeah, his code tends to be structured the way that it comes out when he does do test driven. And, and it informs, you know, the things that he likes about the code and at the same time gives him the opportunity to explore, you know, different areas of how he wants to, you know, build code in the future. And so it's, it's interesting just to kind of do the mental exercise and go, okay, you know, I haven't done this before. Let me try it for a month or two. You know, this is a flip side of what Corey does. But, you know, try TDD for a month or two and see what comes out of it that you like and then see if you can make that, like you said, an intuitive part of the way you write code. Yeah, it can be beneficial, especially working in consulting now where we're, we do some staff augmentation where we join client teams instead of running the project internally at Big Nerd Branch. And so they have their own approaches to testing. And so... Instead of seeing that as something to grumble about, like I've decided to, to take the approach of like, I want to learn something new here. Mm -hmm. And so our testing approach on this view project is different than what I've done before. So we test um, individual, you know, JavaScript inherently is kind of more functional than Ruby can be. So because you can access individual functions directly and views state layer that they have also is set up that way where you have a lot of individual functions. And so we've taken the approach of, of each function we're testing directly. Even if you pull out a helper function to kind of extract some duplication, test the helper. And so this is interesting and new to me because in some senses, you could think of that as an implementation detail. Like the rest of the app doesn't need to know that I have this helper function. It just needs to know that this computed getter or this action that sets some data works the way it's supposed to work. So that was my initial inclination, was to, to test this kind of state management object as a whole. Um, and I've heard a lot of principles in the Ruby world about kind of you know, leaving those implementation details in there. But because it's interesting how the language directs you that way, because it's not an object that has, uh, like in Ruby, that has private and public methods and, and um, accessors, but instead, like these are just the method or functions that are exposed directly. Mm -hmm. And so you can make the judgment call about what level you're going to test at. And so we've seen some benefits of doing the lower level testing on individual functions. Some of it is covering edge cases that would have been hard to get to otherwise or harder to understand in the test what you were trying to accomplish there. But on the flip side, uh, as Dave and Nathan were mentioning, that kind of cup that, that makes your test very coupled to the implementation. And so refactoring always results in us changing the tests because we're changing something. And so we have to change the related test. It's a discouragement from doing too much inter internal refactoring. 
So there's trade-offs there. And so I've been glad for the experience to learn that. And the team is receptive. So if we were seeing a real undeniable cost to doing things a certain way, they'd be up for changing. But it's, it's been great to just kind of be challenged to do something new. This reminds me of something that Ken C. Dodds mentioned a few days ago about testing implementation details. And I got thinking about that and what's involved. And I've, I want to explore it more sometime soon, and I'm sure folks have already explored it. But the idea of choosing what level to test at is kind of choosing what you consider an implementation detail. So when Nathan mentioned testing a system where you just have end-to-end tests, it's kind of like saying, you know, the internals of the system is all implementation detail that I want to have ease of refactoring. Even to the point of if you're using Cypress, you could replace a Rails system with a Phoenix system. And you can use the same tests hypothetically. Whereas if you're testing those individual functions, then even the individual function is, it's only the body of the function, this implementation detail that you can change. And if you think about something more in the middle where you say, okay, I've got a class, the private methods are not something I want to try to test even to work around to do it because that's an implementation detail that I want to refactor. And so I think that's something interesting to think through. For your system, what flexibility do you want to change things out versus what things do you want to decide? This is an interface for me to be able to plug different objects together. And I want to think about that interface of this individual class or function. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes that hard is it changes all the time. Like what your preference is, is going to change sometimes per class, sometimes per file, sometimes per function, certainly per project. It's always a judgment call. And there's trade-offs involved on, uh, you know, with everything that we do. So we don't have a one-size-fits-all answer coming out of this episode, but that's what I was hoping <laughs> You're the consultant. It depends, right? Exactly. That's the job. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered pretty much everything here. Let's go ahead and uh, do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Nate, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I do, actually. So uh, this is music for folks when they're programming. I don't know what type of style of music everyone likes. But for me, I like to listen to kind of trance or just kind of down-tempo beats and things like that. And so two albums that I've been listening to lately that have been really helpful for me to get into a deep state of focus and flow are Future Primitives Subconscious. It was released in 2004. Fantastic. And Carbon-Based Lifeforms Interloper, released in 2010. Both of those are fantastic. Nice. Uh, Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. So uh, my first pick is if you have a wood shop in your basement like I do that's in in an enclosed area with not much ventilation, then you should have a good dust collection system. I recently picked up one that filters down to five microns. So it's thinner than a uh, single hair. Uh, So definitely recommend one of those. And I guess while we're on the spirit of music, usually when I'm developing, I listen to Doctor Who theme music on loop. So the same song several hundred times a day, just over and over and over. And I've not gone insane yet. 
I, I wonder if somebody hypnotize you with that music now. <laughs> Send Chuck money. Anyway, um, I'm going to jump in here with a, a couple of picks. Uh, since we're talking about music, the, the thing that I've been doing when I've been uh, writing or coding is I listen to video game uh, music on YouTube. And so I've, I've got a playlist actually on devchat.tv. I think it's called writing music or author music or something. And uh, yeah, I've got a couple of videos that I just turn on and then I, I have to switch the tab to something else because, you know, it, it, it's a video and as the pictures change, it distracts me. Um, but I, I really, really dig that. And uh, so I've been enjoying that. And then um, I've also been um, in my downtime on my phone. I've been playing this game on my phone. It's called Disney Heroes something or other. And uh, Battles, I think is what it's called. And uh, yeah, so you, you uh, rescue and use Disney characters and then you uh, fight other uh, Disney characters. And, and that's been a ton of fun. My kids like watching it because they know who all the characters are. Um, I was playing it the other day and my, my uh, two-year-old, she'll be three in a couple of weeks, um, she looked at me and she pointed at Vanellope and she's like, she's like, I'm that girl. And then she pointed at Ralph who was also on the screen and that's you, dad. And so, yeah, apparently I'm Wreck-It Ralph. I'm loud and I break things. And uh, she's Vanellope because she's a girl. So anyway, um, yeah, that was fun. So the, the, those are my picks. Josh, do you have some picks for us? Sure. So I mentioned earlier a few different books that I recommend on outside-in testing. Effective Testing with RSpec 3 for the Rails world. And I recommend it to uh, anyone, whatever environment you're working in, because it's just so practical and links to a bunch of the different talks and blog posts that we've mentioned in the chat. Uh, also, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests is the original book on outside-in testing. A third book that I'd recommend for testing, um, especially if you're thinking about those trade-offs and you don't want so much of a prescriptive approach, but instead a de descriptive approach that talks about different alternatives, is called X-Unit Test Patterns by Gerard uh, Mazaros. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. It's a really classic book on looking at testing and a lot of different approaches very thoroughly. So if you really want to go deep, I haven't actually made it all the way through it yet because that's how deep it is, but it's really great. A few other picks are, I've gotten into a few Mac utility apps in the last couple of weeks. So if you're a Mac user, I don't mess with my setup too often, but, but folks recommended to me long enough that I finally went for it. There's a free app called Spectacle for rearranging your windows automatically. And it's great yes. for people. You're a fan? Yes. I'm a huge fan. Spectacle. Yeah. It's changed my life because I found that I was just manually putting windows left and right of each other. So why not automate it? So Spectacle made that very easy. Another one is Alfred, which has been around the Macworld for a long time. It has tons of features. I'm only just using it right now for clipboard management. And you just might not know how often you're having to manually manage your clipboard until you try something like Alfred and you realize that you're not having to go back and forth or change what you're doing in order to not lose the text you've copied. So I definitely recommend trying either of those. You might save a ton of time. You don't realize you're spending. Nice. If people want to find you online, Josh, where do they go? I am coding it wrong on Twitter. And I always tell folks that you can follow me and then see if you agree that I'm coding it wrong. I'm also coding it wrong on Twitch. And so I mentioned that I do a live stream on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. And we're going through React TDD right now. I love to have folks join in in real time to comment and share their input because I want to learn from other folks and what your front-end testing experience has been like. I also have a, a blog at codingitwrong.com. So any of those would be great places to find me. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah, this has been fun. 
All right, folks, we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.